All right, so we have a saying here at Springbrook Church. You've probably heard me say it at some point if you've been here a while. Um, we, we say this. We say gospel doctrine leads to gospel culture. Now, what do we mean by that? That's kind of a little bit of a mantra around here. We, we're, we're very serious about that. It's our, it's our driving uh, hope for our church that gospel doctrine would lead us to gospel culture. And here's what we mean when I say that. I say that it's the things that Jesus is for us and has done for us in the gospel, the things that the Bible teaches us and says to us about Jesus, that those things are what we would call gospel doctrine, right? The things we believe about the work of Christ and the person of Christ. So that's gospel doctrine, but when we say that gospel doctrine leads to gospel culture, what we mean is that we actually live or long to live within relationship to one another in the church as if the things Jesus has done for us are actually true. I know that's radical. I, it, it shouldn't be radical, but it is, I think, sadly. See, here's the problem. A lot of Christians, and I'm not pointing the finger at any particular church or any particular Christian. I'm just saying that myself included, a lot of Christians and a lot of churches, I think in some ways our our own church, has lost sight of what Jesus has done for us and who he is for us in the gospel. Now, I'm not talking about theologically drifting from the gospel. I'm not saying that our doctrinal statements have been changed to reflect some non-true thing. I'm saying that churches and Christians have drifted from the truth of the gospel in practice. And that's why so many churches and so many Christians that we interact with or attend or whatever, um, we, we go to these places or go to these people and their lives or the, or, or the collective group of people do not resemble the fruit of the Spirit in any way. You can go on a website of a church, see, hey, is this where I want to be? You can look at their doctrinal statement and read it all and go, that sounds good. They believe the right things. And then you walk into that church and you find that they're not loving. They're not joyful. They're not peaceful. They're not patient. They're not kind. They're not good. They're not faithful. They're not gentle. They're not self-controlled. And you, and you go there and you're going, there's something wrong here. You feel it. You recognize it. And, and I'm not saying that Springbrook Church is all those things. In fact, I don't think we are. But what I am saying is that we ought to long to be those things and pray that we become those things. And beg the Lord to do that here, where if somebody comes into this room who has never been in this room, what they find is a group of people who are loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, on and on we go, people. We want to be a place of hope, and hope is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So now I say all that, and you might be wondering, what in the world does this have to do with Isaiah? Uh, and, And the two chapters in front of us, I think have everything to do with it. In an Old Testament way, this, these two chapters that we're going to dig into are going to show us 
how the gospel actually should lead to how we live in, in and amongst one another. It's going to show us how gospel doctrine, that is what we believe Jesus has done, and we believe it based off scripture, what scripture teaches, that should actually inform how we interact. And that's really, I think, where we're at. Now, as we get into this book, just for the context of the whole book, this is, become, this is now the start of the third major section of the book. It's the final section. The first section is chapters 1 through 39, where Isaiah is primarily dealing with his own generation and the apostasy, uh, in other words, the abandonment of the faith that those people had in Isaiah's own day. The second section is uh, from chapter 40 through 55, which really gives us a vision of of the Messiah and who Christ is and what he would do for us. Um, And and now 56 through 66, which is the end of the book, uh, we're going to look at how this um, basically all comes together, even though we're still not there completely right? How, how does this all come together even though we still live in a broken and fallen world? It shows us what God's people should be, but often aren't. And it also shows us what we will be ultimately. And it's going to show us what we are right now so we can repent. So uh, as we look at this chapter, we're looking at two chapters, so we got a lot of ground to cover. There's three sections, that, I, that we're just going to break it down into three sections. Um, verse 1 through 8 is going to take us through the picture of the gospel culture that we want to see. It's going to display for us how people who are, who are gripped by Christ should actually live. What should their lives be marked by? It's going to show us a positive example. The second section is verse 9 through 57, 13, which really talks about how the gospel culture in our world is so often broken down and destroyed and what leads to that. And then the third third section is going to be the path forward for us. All right. So if you got a Bible or want to follow along on the screen, we'll look at verse 1 and 2. There's there, in verse 1 through 8, we're looking at gospel doctrine on display. And there are two primary categories of gospel uh, culture, rather, that, that we want to look at. The first category is in verse 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, who not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. All right, now, this right here in verse one, we see the distinction between the gospel doctrine we're talking about and the gospel culture. It starts with, a command to keep justice and do righteousness. That's what we're called to do. Keep justice and do righteousness. But that in and of itself is just law, right? That's not gospel. That's just, hey, fix yourself. If we stopped reading. 
But the very next word is the word for, or we could translate that because. So why keep justice and right and do righteousness? Because, it says, soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. That's God speaking to us. Now we know that Isaiah's writing from the vantage point of his own day, right? So the salvation of God had not yet come in his day through Jesus. It was still a future thing. Today, from our vantage point, we read this and we go, we could say, keep justice and do righteousness because my salvation has come and my, re- my righteousness has been revealed. We know that that's been fulfilled in Christ. And so we are called to live in gospel culture, which means keep justice, do righteousness, because of the gospel doctrine that salvation has come to us. If we, if we divorce the salvation of God from our actions, we are legalists and actually even beyond that, we're not even Christians. Right? We, we, can't, we can't do what God calls us to do without his enabling grace to do it in his salvation. So let's talk about this though. Let's, let's say we're called to something here. We're, we're told by the Lord to keep justice and do righteousness. What does that actually mean? What does that mean? Well, it, here's what it means. Just bring it really, really boiled down to its to its most foundational. It means that we actually care about people. That's what it means. We care about people. We want people to have justice when they've been wronged, and we want people to experience righteousness from us, positive influence of good in their lives. We should long for this in our churches and in our nation. We should long that people who are suffering and being oppressed and being hurt have remedies for that hurt. We should keep justice and do righteousness. We are living in turbulent times as a nation. We all know that. We all know that. And I want to be clear here, I'm not ever going to suggest that our solution is politics because it's not. We just read in Psalm 146, don't put your trust in princes because they'll die and then their agenda dies with them. We put our trust in the Lord. We don't put our trust in politicians or in leaders of a secular state. We, we put our trust in Jesus. But as Christians, we should be doing what he calls us to do, and that is to keep justice and do righteousness. And so to, to clarify this, to make this clear, I think Paul gives us some good indication. If you want to flip over here, Dwayne, to uh, t- Romans 12 for me. Here I think Paul lays out um, the same concept, just phrases it in a little bit different way. Hopefully we can understand what he's talking about. Verse 9 through 13 says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. That's justice. That's another way to say justice. You hate what's evil. Justice is what comes in to deal with what's evil. Christians should hate evil in all forms. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. 
outdo one another in showing honor. The only competitive thing that we should be doing in our church is competing for how well we honor other people. Outdo one another in showing honor. We don't do this very well as people because we want to have the honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. So contributing to the needs of the saints means you take care of those who are believers. Showing hospitality, we, we think of that as, well, I have a Bible study in my house. Hospitality in the New Testament sense is deeper than that. It it's literally comes from the Greek word that means love of strangers. So showing hospitality means we welcome non-believers and the people that we don't know into our lives. Go on to the next then it closes this way. Well, we'll close with these verses. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. And here's the key. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. This passage summarizes, I think, what Isaiah is saying, that because our salvation has come through Jesus, the way we live should actually reflect that. And how it is reflected is that we actually care for people. You can't rejoice with someone who's rejoicing or weep with someone who's weeping if you don't care about them. And so that's what we're called to do. We're called to care. We're called to pursue what's right. We're called to hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good. We're called to this as Christians, not because we have to do this to make God happy with us, but because God is already happy with us in Jesus because he died for our sins and makes us righteous. We don't put, it, we don't put the cart in front of the horse, right? We're not saying that we do these things in order to make God happy with us. We do these things because God is pleased with us in his son, Jesus. So that's the first aspect of gospel culture that Isaiah points out. It is caring for other people. And there are, of course, millions of applications to that. We can't, I mean, we can't even spend enough time on how that actually applies. But it is clear that what we should be concerned about is, the, is other people in, in our lives. And so let's go on to the next section, verse 3 through 8. This is, a, this is the second component of a, of a positive gospel culture that we see in this text. It says, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from, my, from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuch who keeps my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring into my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the people. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, 
I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. All right, so that's a lot there. We could spend all day on that, and we won't. Um, But here's the point. We see the first sign of a gospel culture is caring for others. The second sign of a gospel culture is the welcoming of those outside of our faith. Being a welcoming place for those who don't love or know Jesus. This is what's happening. The, the, Isaiah's got, the Lord is speaking here and Isaiah is just writing down what he's hearing. But what God is saying is, is this, there's two groups of people that are mentioned here. There's eunuchs and there's foreigners. Both of which would have been um, prevented from being in the worship uh, with everybody else, the Jewish people at this point. Right? They, they were outsiders. They were not welcomed in. They, they didn't have a place in God's, uh, well, they had a place in God's heart. They didn't have a place in his people's heart. And so God is commanding his people to welcome these outcasts in and say to them, you are welcome here. God's house is for you. In fact, in verse um, seven, at the end of verse seven, these verses are, this verse is actually quoted by Jesus in a very famous scene when he goes into the temple and he starts to turn the tables over, right? Everybody knows that story for the most part, right? Like Jesus flips out, gets really mad, starts turning over tables. And then after he's done, he reads that verse. Why? Well, that it's because they were breaking God's rule and God's heart in this because they had taken the portion of the temple that God had assigned for foreigners and eunuchs, people who would have normally been cast out of worship, there was a portion of the temple, the outermost portion of the temple complex was set aside for those people, that they could come and hear the gospel and that they could come and pray to the Lord. And what the people in Jesus' day had done was they said, oh, this is a waste of space. Let's turn it into a marketplace. And Jesus gets in there and says, "Uh, no, this is not for you to make money. This is a space that is sacred and set apart for the people who are not of your people to come in here. That's why he says that my house will be called a house of prayer for all peoples. It shows the heart of God for the outsider. It shows the heart of God for those who don't know Jesus. Do we have that heart? Do we want people who don't know Jesus to know him? Are we creating an environment in our church and in our lives where that's actually capable of happening? I think, again, Romans is helpful here. Romans uh, 15 or 14. I don't know where I start that on the screen. uh, 15. Um, Paul, in the context of 14 and 15, Uh, is talking about how Christians should interact with people who disagree with them, both inside the church and outside the church. And he concludes in 1 through 7 this way. He says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that 
through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Then this is how he concludes it. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Paul's saying that even though we have our differences, we have our differences of opinion, we even may have uh, we may even be separated in our, in our face at this point. The call of a Christian is to welcome one another because Christ has welcomed you. Christ didn't welcome you when you had it all figured out and you were perfect and wonderful because guess what? You're still not. Neither am I. Christ welcomed us when we were still sinners. And so the implication is if we're called to welcome one another as God has welcomed, as Christ has welcomed us for the glory of God, that means we should actually welcome people who are far from him, right? We, we need to see that this is how the gospel culture we're called to live in is displayed. It's displayed in pursuing justice and righteousness, care for people, and it's pursued through the welcoming of outsiders, we have so much we got to talk about, so we got to keep moving on. But um, if you look back at um, 56, verse 9, we'll, we'll read a big chunk. And then I'm just going to like, well, actually, we'll read a smaller chunk and then a big chunk. Um, but here's, this is the section where Isaiah starts to pivot. And he, he's going now, he's going to move now away from the positive picture of gospel culture to the destructed picture, the, the destroyed, what is, what is unfortunately so often the case. And he's going to again give us two reasons for this. We'll look at the first in verse uh, 9 through 12. It says, All you beasts of the field come to devour all you beasts in the forest. His watchmen are blind. They are all without knowledge. They are silent dogs. They cannot bark, dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. The dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough, but they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each to his own gain, one and all. Come, they say, let me get wine. Let us fill ourselves with strong drink and tomorrow will be like this day, great beyond measure. All right, so what's, what's happening there? Well, we're seeing the very first breakdown of gospel culture. And that is, uh, I'll summarize it this way. It is selfish leaders. Selfish leaders. Church leaders in particular, because we're talking about the church, but this has broader application, of course. But we know he's talking about the leaders of Israel, the leaders of his own day. He calls them watchmen, he calls them shepherds. Two, two phrases or two titles that would have been assigned to the leaders, the human leaders of the people. We know that the term shepherd is applied to the elders of the local church in Acts 20. Um, and in 1 Peter 5, we know that this is, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about the leaders of the people, whether that be elders, pastors, whatever you call them, right? Church leaders. When church leaders lose their way and become selfish, self-absorbed, 
hungry for their own gain, everything starts to break down. So I'm preaching to myself on this because I'm one of the leaders of the church. I'm preaching to the elders of our church. We, we talk about this actually all the time, um, all the time. And they'll tell you, I'm always hammering them up to be not terrible people. <laughs> um, and myself too. We're all, we're all in it together. And so I, this is the thing is, this, is, this parallels a passage we don't have time to look at in Ezekiel 34. It parallels uh, Acts 20. I mean, we could talk about this for so long, but we, ha- we have to keep moving. So the, the key here is this, that when the church's leaders become self-absorbed uh, after their own selfish gain, it says here in, says, he refers to them as dogs with a mighty appetite that never have enough but they're shepherds that have no understanding. All of them have turned to their own way, each to his own gain, one and all. He's referring to leaders that do not care about the people that, are, that, are, that they are there to care for and teach and protect and guard, but instead are there to make themselves a name or make themselves a paycheck or make themselves a whatever. And, and we have to just guard our hearts to keep us from being this way because every one of us can become this way whether you're in leadership or not we can all get there so that's the first thing selfish church leaders now here's the second this is a big section it's verse uh, 1 through uh, 13 here we go the righteous man perishes and no one lays it to heart devout men are taken away while no one understands for the righteous man is taken away from calamity he enters into peace. They rest in their beds who, wake, who walk in their uprightness. But you draw near, sons of the sorceress, offspring of the adulterer and the loose woman. Whom are you mocking? Against whom do you open your mouth wide and stick out your tongue? Are you not children of tr- transgression, the offspring of deceit? You who burn with lust among the oaks under every green tree, who slaughter your children in the valleys under the clefts of the rocks. Among the smooth stones of the valley is your portion. They, they are your lot. To them, you have poured out a drink offering. You have brought a grain offering. Shall I relent for these things? On a high and lofty mountain, you have set your bed and there you went up to offer sacrifice. Behold the door and the doorpost. You have set up your memorial for deserting me. You have uncovered your bed. You have gone up to it. You have made it wide and you have made a covenant for yourself with them. You have loved their bed and you have looked on nakedness. You journeyed to the king with oil. You multiplied your perfumes. You sent your envoys far off. You sent down every, uh, even to Sheol. You were wearied with the length of your way, but you did not say it is hopeless. You found new life for your strength, and so you were not faint. Whom did you dread and fear, so that you lied and did not remember me, did not lay it to heart? Have I not held my peace even for a long time, and you do not fear me? I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they will not profit you. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. The wind will carry them all off. A breath will take them away, but he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. Again, tons here, so we don't have time to talk about all of it. 
But here's where we're at. I think this is how we can summarize all that we just read. See, the first breakdown of gospel culture is selfish leaders. The second breakdown of gospel culture is prideful, hypocritical Christians. See, this is where we need to hold a mirror up to our own faces. And we we need to see that this passage is describing people who didn't outright reject the message of God, but they, you know, because, well, it says they continued to bring him their sacrifices, right? They didn't outright reject him, but they tried to replace him when it was convenient for them. They lived hypocritical, contradictory lives. They said one thing, they did something else. They ran off to false gods that would suit them in the moment and then turn back to the true God when that suited them. And so God is calling them out for their hypocrisy, for saying one thing, doing something else. And this is the key, right? Like gospel culture cannot exist in a church if the Christians in that church don't see themselves as sinners in need of grace, but rather as people who are just all there and we have it all put together. All that does is produce in us hypocrisy, and pride. And that's the breakdown of gospel culture. It's like, we don't have time. I I had it in there. We don't have time to read it, but it's like the story that Jesus tells about the, the tax collector and the Pharisee, and he compares how they pray. And the Pharisee's prayer is this, literally, thanks that I'm not like that tax collector over there. We, we read that and we're appalled, right? We're going, how could you pray that you're, and thank God that you're not like somebody else. But we all do that. We all do it because we're, we're sinners. We want, we want to boast in our goodness, even if it's fake goodness. And, and, the, and the tax collector prays, and all he prayed was, God, forgive me, I'm a sinner. And Jesus said it was his prayer that justified him, not the other. We have to reject pride and hypocrisy in our lives. And the only way we get there is through repentance, through acknowledging it, owning it, and actually turning to Jesus with it. And that's where we actually begin to see the passage go. The passage goes towards our path forward. So let's look at verse 14 through the end of the chapter. It says, And it shall be said, Build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstacle from my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. God is saying, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to build this up. I'm going to take away every obstacle from your path. I'm going to remove everything that gets in your way to come to me. And he did this through Jesus, right? The cross is the great equalizer. Every one of us comes to Jesus on the same level ground at the cross. Jesus removes every obstacle. And and what he says is this. He's going to do this. And what's going to be the outcome? He is going to be with the contrite and low in spirit the one who acknowledges their need, acknowledges that we're not proud. We can't be proud. We have to be low and contrite. We have to be able to acknowledge our need. 
And then here's the promise, 16 says, for I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the spirit would grow faint before me in the breath of life that I made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him, I hid my face and was angry, but he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips, peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. What God is saying is this. He's telling us that our only hope is to come to him through repentance, through acknowledgement of our wrong. And in that way, we will receive healing. We'll receive grace. We can go boldly to the throne of grace with confidence and we will receive help in our time of need. We need to recognize the ways we failed to live as God would have us live. We have to own it. We have to confess it. We have to repent of it. And we need to be, uh, we need to do that now so that we will be healed. That's the only path forward. And the, the, the end of this chapter tells us that if we refuse to do that, if we just continue to live how we want to live in our own selfishness, our own wickedness, our own brokenness, then we're going to be like, he says, the tossing sea. We're just going to keep getting tossed by the way. We're not going to have any peace. We're not going to have any security. We're not going to have any joy because all we're going to be doing is trying to keep our head above water. But it's in, it's in, turning from our ways. It's in owning our sinfulness. It's in coming clean with the Lord. He already knows everything you've ever done anyways. You're not hiding anything from him. So own it all and receive his grace. That's how we get to a gospel culture. We won't get there unless we're collectively together working towards this, both as individual people, which then leads into a corporate uh, deal. We're, we're going to see it happen church-wide as we individually pursue God's grace in our lives. But, but man, we, we need this. We need this reminder. We need the reminder because we are, we are truly needy. We got to own it and we got we to gotta do what we got to do to come to him. So uh, let me pray for us. We'll conclude there. Uh, we'll sing a couple songs to conclude our time and we'll We have communion set up as well, uh, so I'll explain that in just a moment, but let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace to us. We thank you that you will not always be angry. In fact, we know that in Christ, as we come to Jesus, you're not angry anymore. We, We know that you give us a revived life. You wake us up from our apathy and you give us hope. We pray that we would rest in that today. We praise you for it. We thank you for Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen.